you're a leader in an organization, how do you begin to set this expectation that, hey, this is how we want to treat and consider the transaction we have and the customers we have? So it definitely starts at the top, the board, CEO, setting expectations. You know, I first became interested in this whole model when I was working with Netflix many, many years ago. And I saw how they were setting expectations with shareholders that, hey, don't just look at our acquisitions, look at our retention number. That's the thing to notice because we have 36 month relationships or longer with our subscribers. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Robbie Kelman Baxter. She's the author of the book titled The Forever Transaction, How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling Your Customers Will Never Want to Leave. And she's joining me today on Sales Enablement, episode 774, to talk about what companies who are selling services on a subscription model have to do to acquire and, most importantly, retain their customers. As Robbie describes it, a forever transaction happens when a customer starts behaving like a member instead of a client and is committed to your organization and stops looking for alternatives. So we'll dig into how companies should go about orchestrating those moments when customers remove their consumer hats and put on their member hats and commit to your company for the long term. It's really such an important insight. I've spoken to hundreds of CEOs and I, <laughs> who have sold subscription model products and services I don't think a single one has ever talked about their members versus their customers. So, Robbie and I are going to dive into the forever promise you have to make to your customers, and she shares case studies of what companies have done to cement this promise. So, all this and much, much more. Before we get to Robbie, I want to let you know that the whole team of people who work to produce this podcast are incredibly grateful for all of you who support us by listening to the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and most importantly, subscribing to the show and giving us your feedback in the form of a rating and a review. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Robbie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. Pleasure to have you. So where are you, where are you riding out this storm, this COVID-19 storm? I am riding it out in Menlo Park, California. Ah, one of my favorite places. Um, and so you just, like, you're venturing outside at all? I mean, do you have a yard or? Uh, we, have, we have a yard. Nice. I spend a lot of time in the yard. I uh, spend a lot of time in the garage on our Peloton bike. Ah, uh, Peloton. <laughs> what's, what's, your, what's your screen name? I'll, I'll follow you. Uh, Bax Mom. Bax Mom. Okay. All right. I'm the sales house. So, um, But sales yeah, mine is, mine is sitting. I just finished about an hour and a half ago. It's sitting over there in the corner. Who's your favorite instructor? Matt Wilpers. Oh, Yours? I like Matt. Um, I probably ride with... Robin and Allie the most, mm -hmm. uh, but I enjoy the variety. <laughs> oh yeah, well, yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, I like I like Matt, and then I also they have rides with uh, like Christian Vandeveld and some oh, pro cyclists. So you're a serious cyclist, then? Well, I, I don't know. I pretend I'm a serious cyclist. Yeah. So yeah, I like the ones that seem more cycling oriented as opposed to like spin classes and so on. So yeah. yeah. So I do that, and I I do a lot of the like the scenic rides. You know, sometimes I'll want to watch a. When there was sports on TV, I'd want to watch maybe a, a soccer game or something. I'd put that <laughs> on. And then, that? Yeah, and then have a scenic, a scenic ride on. So, how many rides have you done on Peloton, do you think? I have done about 400 rides. Yeah, I'm about the same. I may be just slightly over 400, but yeah. So, yeah. cool. Peloton buddies. All right, I'll Yay. look for you. Um, and so, yeah, we don't dwell too much on COVID-19 because hopefully that 
comes and goes, and people listen to this episode for a long time. Um, we're going to talk about your book, your new book, The Forever Transaction, which follows up to your, yes, right there, uh, which well-positioned for people watching this on video. And on the other shoulder, the other shoulders, your previous book, Membership Economy, which is also an excellent book. And um, tell us what you meant by The Forever Transaction, because I thought this was interesting. I really want to dive into this. Again, Primarily from a, you know, we do, you talk about it in the book, both from a consumer and a B2B standpoint. And we're going to dwell more on the B2B side here today, but uh, tell us what it is. The, the forever transaction is that moment when a, a customer takes off their consumer hat where they're considering alternatives um, and they put on their member hat and they decide that your business is the way they're going to solve their problem or achieve their goals for the foreseeable future. It's when they're, you know, a lot of times it's when they decide I'm going to just subscribe and pay every month and not worry about this anymore. Um, it's when a company says, okay, we've solved that problem. Let's move on to the next thing on our list. Mm -hmm. um, and it's what we all want as business owners. We want our customers to say, you know, when I have these kinds of problems or I need to achieve these kinds of goals, this is who I go to. This is how I get things done. This is part of my habits. Mm -hmm. Well, so what has to occur for that mind shift to happen? And we can start on the consumer side if we want and then migrate to the B2B side because, yeah, obviously we're a big audience in the show that uh, people work at SaaS companies you know, and certainly subscription-based. And as I mentioned before we started recording, it's like, yeah, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody in SaaS <laughs> refer to their customers as members. And I think this is really an important mindset to shift that needs to, needs to occur. But anyway... Um, what has to happen? Yeah, so I think on, on the on the consumer side or on the customer side, they have to be comfortable paying on a regular basis. Um, they have to be uh, comfortable with the level of trust that they have for the organization. So I'm not going to pay somebody regularly or give them access to my credit card if I don't know and trust them. But on the business side, um, what I think is really important to note is that Having being part of the membership economy is not the same thing as having subscription pricing. Mm -hmm. So just because you're a SaaS, and I think this is what you were getting at, just because you're a SaaS business does not mean that your organization has a membership mindset. And there's so much room to strengthen and deepen your model if you think of it more holistically. So, so for example, a lot of organizations I've worked in, uh, worked with over the years um, that have enterprise software. Uh, the first thing they do as they move towards SaaS is they just start calling it SaaS. Um, <laughs> and they, they start what? doing subscription pricing around kind of a jerry-rigged right. product that was not, was not built or architected um, for SaaS. Yes. Um, so in other words, that's slapping subscription pricing on a non-subscription product. Um, a lot of organizations do that. A lot of them say, it's SaaS and we're going to leave everything else the way we've always done it. Um, but over time, I think, you know, the last five years, um, ideas like customer success, so mm -hmm. focusing on not just on solving problems for customers when they complain, but making sure that they onboard well mm -hmm. and they engage um, and tracking different metrics. So, you know, I don't know, I've been, I've been in this world, in this kind of membership world for about 15 15 or more years, but I remember in the beginning, I wanted to get t-shirts that said, make retention sexy because no companies, um, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. So most of my clients were, were SaaS companies. None of them cared about retention. Like I cared about retention mm -hmm. and, um, and none of them were really focused on 
the onboarding experience and seeing kind of the issues between, you know, the moment that you close the sale, um, you really have to think about how to onboard those members so they actually engage with the product and use it. And it starts to expand across the organization and they make it a habit. Um, that requires a whole different way of um, of running your business, a whole different set of metrics, um, a deeper focus on retention, not just on, you know, what's the cool new logo we're going to get, you mm-hmm. know, the new company logo, you know, that that big logo slide that every company seems to have. Oh, yes. well, we don't even refer to it as acquiring new customers anymore. It's acquiring a new logo. Acquiring <laughs> new logo. Like, yeah, forget the people or the yeah, businesses yeah. No, we're just supporting. getting a logo, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I mean, I think the company has to take that step back and say, we don't just want to acquire new customers. We actually want to engage and keep them and expand the relationships. Well, so words matter. And, and this idea of that you talk about is as treating customers as members has implications for certainly how you relate to them, but also the customer perception of what they're a member of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, when when I was writing the book, I'm like a pretty analytical person. And, you know, there were things that bothered me about my own my own business model, my own book, right? I was thinking, well, wait a minute, does does the company have to call them members? So does every SaaS business have to stop calling them customers and start using Robbie's language of members? And what I would say is, first of all, it doesn't matter what the customers call themselves. So you know, if you listen to Spotify, you might call yourself a listener, you might call yourself a subscriber, you might call yourself a user. That's your choice as a, as a customer. Um, but the company, what I find is when they start using language of membership, when they start referring to the people they serve as members, it changes the way they think. They, they focus more on the long term. They focus more on the relationship. And I think that's the part that really matters when you treat the customer like a member. The other thing is, you know, when you think about having a subscription business versus being part of the membership economy, to have a subscription business, all you need is subscription pricing. Mm-hmm. To be part of the membership economy, you need to have a focus on the long-term success of your customers as your primary North Star. Right. But the point I was getting to, isn't, isn't sort of implicit in that, though, is that this idea of community, though, is oh, that, yeah. you're, that you're a member of something, right? I think that when you, we think about retention, yeah, on a SaaS basis, again, this is a terminology I've never heard a SaaS CEO use, is, yeah, my members are part of this bigger community, right? Or they feel like they're part of this bigger community. You know, you see this being developed by Salesforce and others that are holding these events, like Dreamforce is a big way to sort of encourage the sense of community. I think they've successfully built that. But, again, that seems very rare. It's very rare. I think Salesforce is a really good example of a, of a company that does this well, Um you know, and they're they're kind of the leaders. Uh, when you talk about Dreamforce, you know, I, I work, you know, I've been working for a long time with, with SaaS businesses, but when my first book, Membership Economy, came out, I started getting a lot of clients in Washington, D.C., a lot of associations, mm-hmm. professional societies, trade guilds. And one of the things that they lamented was they said, you know, nobody comes to our conferences. They said, millennials don't like conferences and we can't get them to come to the conference. And you know, I'm, I live in Northern California. I'm like, well, you know, Salesforce has yeah, this event say, yeah. where every single hotel room for a hundred miles is booked and they bring a big cruise ship into the Harbor for extra, you know, room. Uh, it's maybe, you know, they're just not that into your conference. Right. Uh, because, because what Salesforce is doing is staying in tune with their members and, giving them a way to get the value that they came for. So, 
you know, if I'm a Salesforce administrator, my community, maybe my community is my colleagues at my job, but maybe I feel more connected to other Salesforce administrators Mm -hmm. because that's like my professional society. Right. Right. Um, And so when I, I need to get together with those people and that happens to be under the umbrella of Salesforce. um, So it actually creates, you know, value for the company, but the value I'm getting is coming from my peers, from Mm -hmm. other customers. Right. And tapping into that is one tactic of this membership economy. It's recognizing that it's not just the soft. I didn't come for the software, or maybe I came for the software, but I'm going to stay for the community. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stay for the support. I'm going to stay for the fact that maybe Salesforce cares about me being successful in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know that a lot of these events are places where people actually find new jobs. They right? can be absolutely um, right. Right. If I'm a Salesforce administrator and I'm not happy at this job, that's a really great place to figure out where I'm going to go next. It's it's serving the purpose of a professional society. Yeah, well, I think that's why I started thinking of when you're saying, you know, hey, yeah. feeling like members, if, if you're developing this community around your particular application, then yeah, you get that interchange of, and that starts reinforcing people's individual decisions to stay. I mm-hmm. mean, if you're doing a bad job and everybody's bailing, then it could reinforce the decision to leave. But in general, I think that, yeah, if you're looking for a retention strategy, that experiential component of it. Making people feel like members, but again, you just don't you just don't hear the words enough. And I, no. I well, there's I think there's a few reasons for this in the in the in the SaaS world. So so one of them is, um, you know, they're very focused on growth, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of emphasis on growth through new members. Um, that's what people want to talk about. You know, it's, it's more interesting to talk about new members than to talk about, you know, lifetime value or how long someone stays. Also, those metrics are harder to track. Though with within a few years, you know, two thirds, three quarters of your revenue is coming from recurring revenue from your existing customers. Right. But yeah, right, right, and they're they're starting to get that. I mean, I do hear them talking about you know MAU, you know, monthly active users, mm-hmm. and you know ARR, and like those numbers are starting to be more more important. But but companies aren't always digging into kind of um, unit economics. So mm-hmm. what, when a, when a new customer signs up, how long do they stay? How much does it cost? How much do they revenue do they drive and starting to kind of break that down and then to say, well, what are the leading indicators that let us know if somebody is going to expand or contract or cancel? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a different way of thinking about the relationship. I also think that um, they tend not to worry about keeping people as long. They don't, it's not what they're thinking about. The salesperson's thinking about closing the deal, you know, big game hunting, bringing the, the woolly mammoth back to the cave yeah. and leaving it for the yeah, you know, I'm rolling women my and eyes, children, but yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, to take care of. Um, that's a very different mindset than kind of this um, nurturing mindset that really goes with with uh, a, a membership economy vision. So I think it's changing. I think more and more, you know, when I wrote the membership economy, uh, software company leaders didn't necessarily get it. They didn't understand what I was They're like. Well, Robbie, I don't really, your book doesn't really apply to me or, you know, your concepts don't mm. apply to me. I haven't read your book. Um but then when they read the book, they're like, oh, well, this kind of actually is the problem we're having. And maybe the solution could work. Uh, so I, I kind of wrote membership economy as like a five, a one pound business card to say, right. okay, here's how you can use this and why it would work. And if you're having these problems, maybe this is a way that you can rethink your model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want, I'm sort of distracted. I, I want, because I wanted to go back to a point you had brought before before I forgot it, which was that this doesn't necessarily have to apply to subscription based products. Uh, no. And I think 
Tesla is an example of of one I would say that probably from a even though I think there's a recur little small recurring revenue element of it, but in general, you're buying mm -hmm. a car. Yeah. But you certainly feel like you're, you know, a you're a member of something, not a consumer. Yes, absolutely. And they, so they do that, you know, access to their charging stations, you know, all the all the things that surround the product itself. Yeah, exactly. Well, the things that surround the product themselves certainly. So you know, I know people know that when you know, when when everybody wanted their cars and there were like lines and wait lists, um, when the day came when you could actually go pick up your car, they invited existing car owners to come and help with the event mm -hmm. and made it kind of a celebration where, you know, you have a car, I just got one, you come over and say, Hey, Robbie, let me show you how to use it. And let me show you what I do. Sure. And let me teach you onboarding. Yeah. Onboarding. Exactly. Yeah. But having, bringing your super users to onboard your new members, which mm -hmm. is like so smart. Um, but then they also, um, did things in the, the product itself. So the way they designed, you know, Elon Musk talks about it as being a, um, a software product wrapped in metal. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea is that, you know, in a normal car, you roll it off the showroom floor and it immediately becomes less valuable. It's right. immediately obsolete. But with a Tesla, you know, because they continue to update the software on a regular basis, your car gets better over time, not worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of mindset of membership, which is I don't want to own a car. I want to have the best ride, the best transportation for my needs. And, you know, so the best way I can do that maybe is by buying a car or maybe it's by using Uber or maybe it's by signing up for Porsche Passports mm -hmm. uh, membership model where I can have a, you know, a Carrera on Friday and a Cayenne <laughs> on Monday. Um, there's a lot of ways of doing packaging that value in different ways. But Tesla, you're right. I think without actually having a subscription model, they've done a really good job of aligning the way that they that they provide value with the way that their customers need that value, the most valuable way for the customers, layering in more value than just the car itself, the community, the updates, the feedback, well, all of that. Yeah, I think you sort of you can summarize a lot of that in saying the experience, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that is such a critical part. And I think that is becoming more important. I, I, uh, started reading uh, Matthew Sweezy's new book on the context marketing revolution, which talks about this this importance of of the experience. Yeah. And it seems like for a forever transaction is that it's not just one experience, though. It's because so often it, you know, we sort of think like, yeah, let's onboard them, let's make sure they engage with the product quickly. But then, what's the next experience? Yeah, yeah. And when when I work with organizations, one of the things that that I like to do is to say, okay, you want to have this customer for how long? Right. Uh, so let's say that it's a dating site. Well, you might say, well, it's six months. I want to have them until they get married or until they find their true love. Um, but let's say that you're, which is actually the business that the LinkedIn guys started before sure. LinkedIn, right? right. Social net. Um, you know, unfortunately for them, you know, they're very lifetime oriented, but that's a very short lifetime of relationship. Right. Your whole career, right? That might be 50 years thinking through what are all the moments when you're going to need value and how do we deliver at all of those points. So a lot of companies already are doing the, what are the touch points for us? You know, very product centric. When do mm -hmm. they touch our product? But this is more member centric saying, what are the moments when they would really benefit from our help? Right. And then how are we doing that? So it's not, so yeah, certainly when they sign up, because they have some pressing problem that motivated them to do that. But then over time, so one example, um, I've done a lot of work with Haggerty, which is an um, insurance company for classic cars. Right. That was a good story and in the book. 
Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. And, and one of the things that's really interesting about them is that they found that, you know, most, you know, all their clients are insurance, you know, people who own classic cars who need them insured, but they realized that car guys don't necessarily always own a car. Uh, that there are people that want to be part of the Haggerty community and hang out with, you know, I'm calling them car guys or mm-hmm. you know, car people, but they're mostly guys. Um, the people that want to hang out with them, like that might start when you're 13 years old and you're always like looking for that cool car down the street and seeing if you can get right. a ride in it. Right. And you have the pictures on your walls. How do you engage that person from that moment through when they're, let's say, you know, 18 and they buy a clunker and they're working on it on the weekends to, you know, then they maybe have a family and don't have extra resources or extra time to own a car, but they still want to feel connected to the community to that time when they're maybe empty nesters and they, Mm -hmm. you know, buy their dream car. Haggerty is saying, well, we want to have that relationship the whole time. So we mapped out all of those moments in a car lover's life. And what could a company like Haggerty do for them? You know, their mission is to help people who love cars get the most enjoyment out of cars. Right. Right. And one way is through insurance. You don't worry about your car, but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other ways to help people enjoy, you know, the classic car experience. Well, another story you you talk about in the book, it's interesting. It resonated because I just read another book uh, which used EA, Electronic Arts, as sort of an example. Have you read Peter Fader's book, uh, Customer Centricity Playbook? Yeah. 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 So he has, you know, a similar story about EA. And I had just interviewed him a week ago. Is why don't you tell people about EA and Electronic Arts and, and how they're, you know, making this forever transaction. And then I want to transition again. We'll go back and talk about a SaaS company example. Yeah. So, so Electronic Arts is, um, you know, pretty well known for the amazing and fun games that they've created. Uh, FIFA and Madden mm-hmm. and, you know, they have a whole slew of games across a lot of game player categories. Um, you know, everything from, you know, shooter games to sports games to strategy games. Um, and the games are you know, historically have been boxed games, you know, 60 bucks for the title, you know, a new one comes out every couple of years, you know, FIFA 2020 or, you know, FIFA 2015 or whatever. Um, and over time, they've layered in more value to make the game fun kind of all year round in an ongoing way. Um, and the CEO there in the company culture is very much focused now on what they call player first. So, how it's kind of like customer centric. How do we make the player's experience as good as possible? And one of the things that they've done is they've created a subscription or a series of different subscriptions that allow players to be exposed to a lot of different games. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can subscribe to be, you know, to get the catalog of games. Um, and then they've also got a network, uh, which is free to be a member of which allows you to interact with other people who are playing the games. You know, so in other words, something that's sort of crazy to me as a, you know, not target audience <laughs> is people like to watch other people, people play, play video it. games. Yeah. Twit, Twitch, yeah. Twitch, right. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're enabling that kind of community around the game player's world. So, you know, they've done that, in, you know, and there's, there's a lot of really interesting things that I'm happy to talk about. But I think the big point is that Electronic Arts as a company is moving from being product centric, which is we have this game that's a hit, we have this game that's a hit, to we have these players who want to play games, who want to get access to games first, who want to be exposed to new games, and who want to connect with their friends who also play games. And we're going to optimize our offering and our ex- use of customer experience around them. Mm-hmm. 
So what are you seeing similar? Do you have an example, uh, let's say the SaaS world, where people are letting the customer drive that, that really your direction, your, your product direction, and so on, uh, to you know, develop, again, this forever transaction member mindset? Hmm. Well, I mean, one, one company that I talked about in the book, um, and I don't know if I'd call them a SaaS company, although SaaS is a key portion of their business, is um, Carbon3D. Uh, makes 3D printers mm-hmm. uh, that you can subscribe to. So okay. you can't own the printer. You have to subscribe to it. Right. Uh, and the reason is that the, the data that they're collecting about how people use the printers actually allows them to optimize the experience. Uh, so for example, they might be able to tell you, hey, you're only using your printer eight hours a day. You should be using it you know, around the clock. Here's how to do that. So it's basically making sure that you're getting the full value that you're paying for of the printer and also connecting them both through the network. So maybe I don't know who else is using the other printers, but I'm being benchmarked against them so that I can get the best value. And mm. um, right, so they're using that data to help me as an individual. That's I, I always think of kind of the distinction between maybe a network and um, a community, where the community is people that I know and I interact with, but right. the network is the power of many people coming together to help one another. Okay, and so they're doing both of those things. Um, the community is letting you know the members talk to each other to come up with best practices and also give feedback to the company. And then the network is them tracking all the data so that they can continue to optimize for the well-being of the entire group. It's a very, very different way to think about manufacturing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Where it used to be that you'd buy this custom, you know, these custom tools um, and have this custom line that was fixed. And if somebody said, let's change it, you know, that'd be like, okay, well, in 18 months, we'll yeah, have... Yeah, we'll retool it. It'll take X amount of time, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, sorry, go back now a little bit, reset this, to talk about the cultures. So, how does, how does if you're a leader in an organization, mm-hmm. how do you begin to set this expectation that, hey, this is, this is how we want to treat and consider the transaction we have and the customers we have? Yeah, so it definitely starts at the top, Um the board, CEO, mm-hmm. um, setting expectations. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I started, you know, I first became interested in this whole model when I was working with Netflix, um, you know, many, many years ago. And I saw how they were setting expectations with shareholders. Right. Um, that, you know, hey, don't just look at our acquisitions. Look at our retention number, which is, you know, <laughs> that's the thing to notice because look at, you know, we have 36-month relationships or longer with our subscribers. So the first thing I would say is you want um, as a CEO to say, I am focused on lifetime customer value. I am focused not just on how many people we acquire, but how that relationship expands and lasts. Um, So, you know, what I see in a lot of companies is they have a SaaS model, but then they're very focused on quarterly revenue and they're very focused, you know, and, and to the, to the detriment, to the, to the detriment of the overall business. So not focusing on how are we onboarding them? How are we retaining them? Are they expanding? Um, a lot of times I see in companies like, you know, the sales team might sell a book of, of, of you know, sell a bill of goods uh, and get the deal closed, but the people who have to use the product weren't brought along. And so they don't onboard. Uh, they don't use the product. They mm-hmm. don't, you know, there's pushback. And then what happens is a year later, Either there's a new manager that comes in or somebody looks at the books and says, We're paying what are we paying for that nobody's using? Yeah, let's you know? get rid of this. Yeah. Let's get rid of it. 
So I think the first step is to focus on some of those other metrics and have leadership saying, this is what we're going to expect. We might have you know, lower acquisition because we're really focused on only acquiring the people that are going to stay. But you make a good point in the book that your acquisition behavior will have an impact on your retention. And so, for instance, you know, if you are saying to the customer and you're selling and getting the initial, initial deal done, we're here to help you, we're here to support you, our motivation is just to help you. And then suddenly it's, but, you know, if you can close this month and we give you that extra discount, well, suddenly all that trust you start building up dissipates. And it doesn't mean they're not going to do a deal with you, right? but that trust is never going to reach the level that you want to turn them into this member mindset. And you can expect, well, I sort of this rule of thumb, which is purely a rule of thumb, is not scientific at all, but you know, the degree that you rely on, on discounts to close those deals is you're going to have a shorter lifetime with them. Yeah, abs- I totally agree with you. I think that it um, it hurts the brand. Um, the trust, companies the have, underlying, yeah, the underlying, yes, the underlying inner, trust. Yeah, because it makes you think. Well, gosh, if they don't really think the product's worthwhile at the full price, what else don't they think? Where else? And it also teaches you to if you, if you're negotiating, it teaches you that you're foolish if you don't negotiate. So, you know, we see this with telcos, right? Um, right. You know, your friend tells you, "Oh, you should call." you know, fill in the blank, your telco and threaten to cancel because they, I did that. They gave me a 10% discount on the spot. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, well, God, if I don't, if I don't call, then I'm stupid, right? Because that's what you're supposed If I don't call, then I'm paying too much. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is have your customers think I'm paying the fair price that everybody else is paying for this value. And so I don't need to worry about the price. The more complicated your pricing, whether it's discounts, whether it's like special fees for different things, the more complex your pricing, the more work the customer has to do to understand your pricing and the less they're going to trust you. So you want to keep your pricing simple so that they don't feel like they have to, like when I think about an airline ticket, right? And you Mm -hmm. buy it on Tuesday and maybe it's a little cheaper. And if you do this and you do that, then you can get a better deal. And if you wait until the very last minute, then you might get a deal on the upgrade. Um, It teaches you that you're in competition with with the vendor. Right. That that one of you is going to win and one of you is going to lose. Absolutely. And what you want to do is have as much alignment as possible and say, look, I'm going to charge you a fair price and I'm going to give you a lot of value. If you're not getting value, you should leave. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that my clients are getting value at this rate. Yeah, and you can do that without the discounting, without the, I mean, first of all, if the discount is really necessary, you should have figured that out during the qualification phase. Um, but secondly is, is, you know, switching costs are so low these days. Yeah. And if you have this type of transaction that goes on, is it's relived monthly, it could be relived, relived quarterly, depending on the deal you're signing, it could be relived annually. You know, in the old days, you sold a piece of hardware, you had tough negotiation, then, you know, they forgot about it, right? Because you weren't, you weren't renewing, but now this, this sticks with you. Right. It's a different, like, you know, we, game theory, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you play the game? If you play the game every month, in other words, the person can leave every month, you're going to play a different game. Yep. You're going to invest more in the relationship than if you're playing a game where it's winner-take-all, one-time play, mm-hmm. right? Because then in the one-time game, and I learned this in business school the hard way, right? When you, you, you play the game one time, the person can totally screw you, take advantage of you because they're never going to play that game with you again. Right. Um, but if they're going to play every month, then you have to have a level of trust um, and they have to see value. And like you said, if you discount it, 
um, they're going to be like, hmm, maybe it's not that valuable. Or they're going to say, well, gosh, if it's that cheap, I'll just try it. But I'm not going to invest any resources in implementing it because we can always cancel it later. Well, an interesting conundrum about that whole or paradox, let's say, of what you just described, though, is that you're saying, okay, well, back when it was a one-time purchase, so let's let's sort of do a yesterday versus today type comparison. Is is you know, when, at least this is sort of the mythology that exists. Is when the old days in sales is all relationship based, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you're saying if it's a one-time thing, is the relationship wasn't quite as important. And then today, because of the ongoing nature of it, theoretically, the relationship should become more important. But when you look at the way sales is conducted. It's oftentimes more automated, mechanized, and and there's not as much emphasis put on the connection and the relationship at a time when it's really needed. Yeah, well, that's, it's a really interesting, I'm, I'm thinking about this as you're bringing up a really interesting point, because I think that at its best, old-time trust was the handshake kind of trust, which is, I don't need a contract with you because I know you, and I know you've got my best interests at heart, and I'm paying you a fair price. So there's trust. I think that's the best case. The worst case that a lot of people have had is kind of that feeling of like the glad handing, you know, I'm doing this deal with my buddy. Yeah, or I'm doing the deal with my buddy and it's not in the best interest of my company, um, but I'm doing it, you know, like the kind of sales guy with his Rolodex, Mm -hmm. you know, the old school kind of like, oh, they'll they'll do it with me because I'm going to take them out for some drinks and we're going to have a good time and they like to work with me. Which by the way, was always overstated, but anyway, go ahead. Always overstated. You mean yeah, yeah. people didn't really do that? No, <laughs> not to the extent. Not to the extent this generation thinks it, it's it's happening. Yeah, but I, it I think it also depends on the industry. I mean, I think it, sure. it depends on what what products you're you're selling. And I think it was more common with commodities, um, just because you know if you could buy your your lumber from this guy or that guy, you'd buy it or your yeah. paper. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Coming off a tech background for since the beginning of tech, yeah, wasn't. But anyway, go ahead. Not that it didn't happen, but not as prevalent. But go ahead. I lost track of my thought. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> well, we're just talking about this, this idea of trust being different and more trust being demanded now, but it's more transactional today, which I think is 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 problematic for sellers is because they're being sort of encouraged is that, yeah, this, this is a more transactional, shorter term, especially because if you're in SDR, you barely interface with the customer for X period of time. In AE, again, you've got a limited period of time, and then yeah. we're handing it off to customer success. Yeah. Yeah. And the trust there, I mean, what, what the point I was, I know what I was trying to make before, before we kind of digress to whether or not three martini lunches were a real thing. And we can, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> well, no, I think I agree with you that in certain industries, I was talking about from my perspective and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and you know, in the tech business, which anyway. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what, what, I, what I was, what I was getting at is that the, the trust needs to be with the company, um, not with any one individual salesperson. But is it, but is it though? I think that's that's a critical point. Is there a level of trust, right? Do I believe that there's a level of trust in SaaS companies right now between the customer and the company? Well, is it more, because, yeah, there's been research on this. And there was an article in HBR just a few years ago, I think he actually, Tiffany Bova was one of the co-authors, is saying that, you know, based on a survey, that customers trusted the individual seller more than the company. Right. Right. And And I think that, Company, the company needs to be the the trusted relationship, um, and I think that there's always a kind of a battle between the company and the salespeople. Um, you know, one of my early product management jobs, you know, I, I grew up in tech here too, um, was uh, in financial services, mm-hmm. and um, there was this uh, 
there's always this battle between the financial managers in a company um, who have their book of business and the brand, right. you know, Goldman Sachs versus Goldman Sachs, private client services people, Morgan Stanley versus Morgan Stanley, private client services people, right. because the, the customers came for the brand, but then they had the relationship and loyalty to the individual salesperson who then took it to the next company. Exactly. So there's always this kind of tension between the brand of the salesperson and the brand of the, of the, of the corporation, of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a question of what's in the best interest for the customer. And the, and the company, yeah, and especially the company. yeah, in the in the model that you're talking about, yeah. So what do you what do you see as ideally what it should be? Well, it depends on where you sit. Uh, you know, if you're the customer, you want the com- you you want everybody to have your best interests at heart, right? Mm-hmm. You want the salesperson, you want the company, you want everybody to be thinking what is in Robbie's best interest. Um, and uh, if you're the company, you want the loyalty and engagement to be to the company to the brand to say, no matter who sells to me, no matter who serves me, who, who, you know, I don't need to get the right guy. Like if you have a feeling in a company, like, oh, you want to, you want to work with that person because that's the best person. um, Then your company has a problem Mm -hmm. because they're not providing consistent value to everybody. And yet if you're a salesperson, of course you want that. You want people to say, oh, you know, go to Robbie. She's the, she's the one that can give you the good deal. Um, don't, you know, if, if you, if, if they, if they try to palm you off to one of the other salespeople, just call back or just say no until you get Robbie. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's, that's hugely destructive, but unfortunately it sort of gets set up that way, right? Sort of this hero, yeah. hero thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Well, we sort of run out of time, but I'd uh, love to have you back and continue talking about this. This is a <laughs> yeah, fascinating really conversation. Yeah, really interesting. So tell people how they can connect with you and learn more about uh, the book. Yeah, so the book's available um, now, this week. Uh, it's available anywhere books are sold, uh, Amazon, your indie bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble. And you can find me um, pretty much anywhere on the internet. Um, Robbie Kelman Baxter is my website. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, so yeah, link in with me wherever wherever you can, wherever, right. wherever you are comfortable. <laughs> Lots of options there. All right, Robbie, thank you very much. And I said, look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank Robbie Kelman Baxter for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time to join me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>